0: Our summer series of messages is uh, not a walk through a book of the Bible or a a long portion of a book of the Bible. We're we're rather looking at individual scenes from the lives of Jesus and the apostles as they engage with unbelievers around them, non-believers around them. Asking questions like what kind of principles and strategies and purposes might we glean in our own engagements with non-believers around us as we look at the way that Jesus engaged unbelief and the way that the disciples, the apostles engaged unbelief in their time. And so we're calling this series Words of Life based on Peter's proclamation in John chapter 6 when Jesus says, do you also want to leave after a whole crowd of people has left him? And Peter says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so as we're seeking to fulfill the the great commission, right, we're seeking to be people who are on this mission that Jesus has given his church, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. Well, we need to be about the work of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And so perhaps we can find no better way to learn how to do that than looking at Jesus himself and his first followers and how they engaged unbelief around them. Last week, we looked at the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And today, we're going to look at a Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So, in your Bibles, turn to Acts 8. We'll go back and forth over these series of weeks between a gospel story and a uh, or story from the gospels and something in, in the book of Acts. A little bit of context, since we haven't been spending any time in the book of Acts lately. Uh, the book of Acts largely tells the story of the birth of the church. And so Jesus has ascended to heaven after his resurrection and 40 days appearing to various uh, people. Uh, and he gave his disciples instructions, go and uh, go into the upper room and wait. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he says in Acts 1a, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the uh, the ends of the earth. Well, so now that happened in Acts 2, right? We saw them gathered, and the Spirit falls upon them, and they begin proclaiming the works of God, and this very diverse crowd of people is hearing those works of God in their own language, miraculously, and then Peter preaches this long sermon in Acts chapter 2, and many, we're told about 3,000, were converted that very day. And added to the church's number. And so now we're beginning to see the story of how this gospel spreads. Part of how the gospel spreads, interestingly, in God's mysterious providence is through the persecution of the Christian church by those who hate it, by those who want to see it squelched and killed. One of those is a young man named Saul, who you know probably better by his Greek name, Paul, who wrote a good portion of our New Testament. But Saul began his Uh, work hating the church and seeking to destroy it and so as he if you were to look at the beginning of Acts chapter 8 which is not where we're going to be today you would see uh, Saul uh, beginning to go from house to house and arrest Christians and uh, and drag them away the chapter before we saw him presiding over the first martyrdom the the murder really of Stephen one of these men uh, who had been chosen as a sort of a deacon a proto-deacon, in Acts chapter 6, Saul presided over that, uh, that execution. And so the persecution is strong and fierce, and so the people are beginning to spread, to get away, really, from the sort of deadly pressure around them. And as they spread, what do they do? They carry the gospel with them, So wherever they go, they are telling people about Jesus. And so new churches start to spring up in different cities and different regions because of the persecution of the church. Philip, who we'll spend time with today, is one of those seven men who had been appointed back in Acts chapter 6 as what is generally regarded as the first deacon. Deacon being an office in the church church for serving and overseeing a lot of kind of practical helps. And this seems to be the first group, the first time where that is really kind of recognized. These men are set aside for this particular work. And Philip is one of these men. And as the people are scattered, we see Philip preaching the gospel in Samaria. We talked about Samaria last week and Jesus' intentionality and traveling through Samaria. Well, now Philip is, is staying there and preaching the gospel there. And, uh, and later, he, he settles in Caesarea and establishes a robust ministry there, uh, and he's mentioned late in the book of Acts, in Acts 21, verse 8, as Philip the Evangelist. That becomes his nickname. That's a pretty cool nickname to earn. So let's read the first few verses here uh, of our passage, Roma, uh, not Romans, Acts chapter 8, beginning of verse 26. The first uh, four verses will just kind of set the scene for us, so we see what's, what's going on. So Acts 8, beginning of verse 26. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. We'll stop there for now. So Philip has been ministering in Samaria, and he receives a message from the Holy Spirit to go to a certain place, get on this road going south from Jerusalem, and then I'll show you what to do. And so he is on this road, and while he's on the road, he sees this chariot, all right? and Philip unquestioningly and immediately follows the instructions, right? So he doesn't have to stop and ponder it. He doesn't have a conversation with God. Wait, are you sure this is what you want me to do? There's good things going on in Samaria. The Lord calls, and he goes. Go south of Jerusalem toward Gaza, and Philip went right away. And we're introduced to this character that he sees, and so there's, a, there's somebody in a chariot passing along, and the spirit says, okay, go. <laughs> go talk to him. This is the man that you are to, to meet with. And we're told several things about this fella in these few verses. We're told that he's an Ethiopian, so we learn right away this is a Gentile. This is not a Jewish person. This is somebody, indeed, who lives a very far way from Jerusalem, a distant Gentile we learn that he is a eunuch. The PG way to say that is that this is a man who has uh, been forcibly made unable to reproduce. And so usually that would happen. It, it's not uncommon to, I mean, it's not surprising to see that he is a, uh, an official in a court because it was common for, for men to be made eunuchs by kings and rulers because it would sort of guarantee their loyalty and their subservience, and it would keep them from having children who might become a threat to their power, etc. And so it was common to see eunuchs serving in a royal court like this because it kept them in a place of subservience. So this is is a, a hard, sad, broken way to live. Obviously, they've been mistreated, they've been forced into this condition most of the time, we are told in other places that some people apparently choose to live that kind of way. But this is somebody who, who has been forced to live like this, uh, who, does no, who doesn't have the ability to produce his own offspring, and now who will live in subservience to, uh, this, uh, to this royal court. Uh, and so that, that's something important to know about this, this man. Uh, we're told that he's the queen's treasurer, right? So he, uh, the, he, the, the treasury of Candace, the queen of Ethiopia, is entrusted to him. So he's a pretty high-ranking official in the court of Candace, which means he's trusted, right? So she, she trusts him implicitly, and so he kind of oversees all of the money and possessions of her kingdom. And we also learn... Basically, that he's a God-fearer. There's this category, as you read through the book of Acts, there's this category of person called a, a God-fearer or a worshiper of God who are not yet converts to Christianity. They haven't come to, to understand or receive Jesus as the Messiah, but they are people who worship Yahweh, the true God. And so this man from Ethiopia, a long way off, has been in Jerusalem to worship We were told that in verse 27. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So a Gentile from far away has made this voyage all the way to Jerusalem to worship God. And now he's traveling back south toward his home. And God has Philip there ready to receive him. Here's the first principle I would point out from this. God sends his people where their witness is most needed. God sends his people where their witness is most needed. He is the sovereign over his church. He places people and their gifts where he sees fit. And so Philip had a good thing going, it seems, in Samaria, but when God says, hey, Philip, go this way, he went. And we'll find as we read through this passage that there is a very specific divine purpose for which God has Philip, uh, that, that God has for Philip to fulfill in this conversation. And so. God has a strategy. God has a purpose. And so he sends his people and his people go. And we ought to bear that in mind for ourselves. Now, remember this Ethiopian is someone outside the, the bounds of Jewish identity. So he didn't have the, the teaching of, of the law, the under, a deep understanding of God's word, but he clearly has a heart to know and worship God, despite this lack of context, this lack of knowledge that the Jewish people had, right, this embarrassment, of riches of the the prophets and the the scriptures had been handed down to them. Well, this Ethiopian eunuch doesn't have any of that. Nevertheless, his heart is drawn to worship the true God, and so he's gone to Jerusalem and he's coming back, and because of the posture of of his heart, it seems to me, God makes sure that somebody is there to help him understand. God makes sure that somebody will find him to meet with him and to help him understand the gospel. His heart is inclined to worship God, but he just doesn't yet know and understand that Jesus is the way to the Father. And so he redirects Philip and sends him down the road to meet with this man. To whom might God intend to send you with the good news about Jesus? Is there someone in your life that you could think of who's outside the faith, but maybe has a heart to know God, or is curious and and seeking, and he simply needs someone to guide them? Why not pray that God would show you someone like that? Lord, would you reveal to me a person within my sphere of influence and relationship that needs to hear the message about Jesus and bring me to them? I think it's a faithful way to pray, that God might use us. God sends his people where their witness is most needed. Maybe we should ask ourselves this corporately as a church. To whom, Lord, would you send us? What person or persons or people in our community or in our world are looking, waiting, leaning in and simply need someone to guide them? And how might we be there to answer that call? Well, the story goes on. So Philip has been instructed to go and talk to this Ethiopian. Go over and join this chariot. And so in verse 30, Philip makes his approach. Let's look together. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up. Or about someone else? Then Philip opened, Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I love this question that Philip asks at the very beginning when he gets into the, char, into the chariot. He observes, he listens, and he hears that he is reading from Isaiah. And Philip asks him this. Do you understand what you're reading Do you understand what you're reading? It's a simple question. It's an invitational question, isn't it? Because if the person says, no, I'm having a hard time, then there's there's an opportunity. There's a response. Are you interested in talking about this? Do you want to know more? Can I help you? Is the posture that Philip has here. Do you understand what you're reading? And in the Lord's providence... What the Ethiopian is reading is from Isaiah chapter 53, and you could hardly find a passage more clearly and beautifully portraying the work of the Messiah in his suffering. And so he asks, is the prophet speaking of himself, or is he speaking about someone else? And there's the the someone else category, is what Phillips jumps on. And so we're told in verse 35 beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He starts with the Bible, a particular passage of the Bible. And he expounds from there, expands it outward to who is this talking about? What did Jesus come to do? How do we know that we can be forgiven? And so he tells him the good news about Jesus beginning with this scripture. Here's here's the second principle I'll draw from this. The Bible is a powerful evangelistic resource. The Bible is a powerful evangelistic resource resource. Now that might sound like so simple and obvious that it doesn't even need to be stated, but we do live in a time where the Bible is often seen as so sort of outdated or old-fashioned or backwards because it came from these old cultures that it's almost irrelevant when you're talking to people who don't already know and believe it. In fact, there are prominent Christian pastors who would make an argument like that. We should really stop saying what the Bible says. We should not start there at all. We should start where they are. Well, that's not what Philip does. Philip sees this man reading from the Bible, and he, sa- he doesn't say, hey, close that, let me give you some analogies. He says, let's talk about the Bible. Let- let's talk about that passage, and let me see if I can help you understand it. Don't underestimate the effectiveness of just reading the Bible together. Truly, if the Bible is the Word of God, we're told in Ephesians 6, it's the sword of the Spirit, right? It's the only really offensive weapon we have in the spiritual struggle in which we're involved. Then it almost doesn't matter if somebody believes it yet or not. That's where we start. This is where God reveals himself. And so if we start with the Scriptures and we say, let's read this together, let's seek understanding together then who knows what the Lord might do to open blind eyes and to give the gift of faith to somebody who needs to believe. And I've seen firsthand in conversations with unbelievers where you just spend time reading the Bible and talking about it together, it breaks down barriers. It leads people to to answer questions that they didn't even necessarily know to ask because the Scriptures are pointing them to it. And so... uh, This this is a powerful way to go about the work of evangelism, even just inviting people to read the Bible together and to think about it together. Pray that God would show you someone in your life or bring someone into your life who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and then when you've identified who that person is, maybe just invite them to read the Bible. Hey, what do you think about meeting up for coffee and reading a chapter of the Gospel of John? Let's just talk about it. And see what the Lord does. In the book, uh, The Trellis and the Vine, there's a a paragraph about just the, the power of Bible reading that says this. Imagine if all Christians, as a normal part of their discipleship, were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading, not only digging into the word privately, but reading it with their children before bed with their spouse over breakfast, with a non-Christian colleague at work once a week over lunch, with a new Christian for follow-up once a fortnight, (laughs) that's two weeks, Uh, for mutual encouragement. It would be a chaotic web of personal relationships, prayer, and Bible reading, more of a movement than a program. But at another level, it would be profoundly simple and within reach of all. Maybe we don't need new, big, fancy, crazy, bold strategies. Maybe we just need to start reading the Bible with people and talking to them about it. And beginning with that scripture, telling them the good news about Jesus. The Bible is a powerful evangelistic resource. So don't overlook it. Don't neglect it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't like kind of embarrassedly, I do, I do believe the Bible, but I know it's kind of like clunky and big and hard to write. Just this is God's word. Invite people to read it and think about it together. You'll probably come up with they'll probably come up with questions you don't know the answer to. And that's okay. Hey, I'm not sure the answer to that. Why don't we find out together? It's okay to say you don't know. But start with God's Word. So here's this Ethiopian reading by God's providence from this beautiful passage that so clearly portrays the suffering of his Messiah, the work that Jesus would do on the cross for his people. And so. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? And so Philip has begun now to tell him the good news about Jesus. God has made a way for sinners to be brought near to him, to be in relationship to him. God has sent his own son Jesus to fulfill the law that no human being had yet successfully done and to die the death as a substitute for all of the sinners that had spurned and rebelled against God, and to rise again from the grave to defeat death. And so if you will trust in Christ, you'll be saved. There's the good news about Jesus. And beginning in Isaiah 53, Philip explains the gospel. And the man apparently responds with very quick belief. It won't always go this way. Don't necessarily assume that will be the case, but in God's providence in this story, look what happens in verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So, the short version of those couple of verses is, The Ethiopian believes what he's heard of the good news about Jesus and is ready to take his next step, right? Uh, If you're thinking about, if you're just citing ways that God has orchestrated this situation, we've already observed God sent Philip along this certain road at this certain time and, and that this Ethiopian had been in Jerusalem, as on his way back home. We've observed that he happens to be reading from Isaiah 53, which is such a clear passage to expound in a Christ-centered way. Now we find that they've come to water, and this would have been the last opportunity before they were south of, uh, of Palestine and headed toward Ethiopia. And so they, they're at the last basically watering hole uh, before you're just in desert and they happen at the time that he comes to understand and believe the gospel of Jesus oh look there's water so God's providence is seen even in that now a note here a secondary note here uh, the, the pattern in the new testament uh, pattern and teaching of the new testament ties baptism to the membership uh, of a local church uh, but this is a different kind of situation it It makes sense for this Ethiopian to be baptized apart from such an assembly because there isn't one yet, right He's an Ethiopian. he went all the way to Jerusalem to worship. There's not a church in Ethiopia at this point, so he couldn't just go to First Baptist Ethiopia and be baptized there with that congregation. It didn't exist and so he's really seems to be the first convert among his people, and so they they come to water and uh and so he sees the opportunity. Well, why can't I be baptized? And so Philip baptizes him. Again, that's a little unusual. In our day, we wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't recommend a, a baptism with two or three people in a pond, right? But this is as public as it could have been in that context. So you've got the eunuch and Philip and whoever is like driving the chariot, I guess. So there's at least a few people here. And it's as public as it could be, this profession of his faith in Christ, and he is baptized. And so we see all kinds of unusual things going on in the book of Acts because this is all new, right? It's pioneering, uh, a pioneering season. And it seems perhaps that even being baptized was a part of Philip's presentation to him. When he explained to him the good news about Jesus, the fact that the Ethiopian sees water and says, hey, maybe I should be baptized, seems to indicate that Philip may have said to him, when you believe in the Lord Jesus, you should be baptized. And so he sees water, takes the opportunity. And so Philip administers some, something of a spontaneous baptism, which, again, I would not necessarily recommend as normative for today, but uh, in this uh, unique age, here's, uh, here's how that happened. So principle number three, God is at work in those who believe. God is at work in those who believe. Everybody that you tell the gospel to won't necessarily believe it. Some won't believe it right away and might believe it later. But there will be many who hear the good news about Jesus and never believe. Jesus said the road is wide that leads to destruction and many who find it. And the road is narrow that leads to life and few who find it, right? So it is certainly a reality that everyone who hears the gospel will not come to faith. But for those who do, you can be assured God has been at work to prime the pump and to make this the case. So prior to our text, God has drawn the heart of this Ethiopian to himself as one who fears God and wants to worship him and travels all the way to Jerusalem to do so. We don't know how, but clearly he's inclined in that direction. God's been working in him. God explicitly commissions Philip to go south and then specifically to join the chariot when he sees it. Join this man's chariot. God's providence is on display in the particular Bible text that he's reading, in Isaiah 53, in the timing of Philip's arrival at the chariot, in proximity to a body of water for baptism. And now, God is at work in the Ethiopians' believing response to the gospel, because Romans 1.16 tells us the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, which just means the non-Jew. Praise God, here is a non-Jew for whom the gospel has become the power of God to salvation. At the end of the day, this is one of the most important things for us to remember. As we consider our mission in the world and as we prayerfully pursue obedience to it, God alone saves. You don't have to save anybody. You can't save anybody. No, all that we can do and must do is be faithful stewards of the gospel. We are freed from the pressure of the perfect sales pitch, of closing the deal. I grew up in contexts where it was very common to sort of almost brag about how many people, how many souls you had won. No, no person wins a soul. Only Jesus Christ wins a soul. And all we're to do is to be faithful witnesses. And it's his to be a mighty savior. And so, praise God, Philip was faithful with the instruction he'd been given. He was faithful to explain the gospel from the passage of scripture that they were reading together. And God, in his sovereign mercy, saves this man. Praise God. And then he's on to the next assignment. The passage ends, verse 39 and 40, uh, in a very interesting way. When they came up out of the water, so he's baptized him, and he comes up from the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So Some more miraculous providence of God, Philip just disappears and ends up in Azotis. all right? This coastal town some distance off. And the Ethiopian doesn't spend too much time worrying or wondering what happened. He just goes on his way rejoicing. I think that's so interesting. Well, he showed up at the right time when I needed somebody, and he explained the gospel to me, he baptized me, and then he's gone again. So, all right, I guess that's just the way the Lord works sometimes. And so, uh, he goes on his way rejoicing, and Philip, for his part, he doesn't spend too much time worrying about how he got to where he was, or, oh, now now I need to make a new roadmap and figure out a plan of where I'm going to go next. He found himself in his Otis, and so he went on preaching, and he kept moving until he ended up at Caesarea, and we know from later in the book of Acts that's where he sort of settles. He spends a lot of time ministering in Caesarea, and the next time we see him, he's called Philip the Evangelist. So on we go. The Lord assigns his people as he sees fit he sends his people to where their witness is most needed and the witness to this ethiopian eunuch was finished and so god removed him and put him somewhere else now i wouldn't expect that to be how god operates today he can do whatever he wants right so if one of you just disappears and ends up across the country somewhere i'll trust that that's god's providence and his will for you but i wouldn't expect it to be like that but he does lead us he does guide us he does open doors and close other doors and we can trust that as we move and navigate through those situations and make those choices, God is guiding us and assigning us to where he needs us to be for his good purposes. The way I'll wrap this up is with one more, one more principle that I see in this story, and that's this. The gospel of Jesus is bigger than our barriers. The gospel of Jesus is bigger than our barriers. If you just look at all the ways that societal, cultural, racial, whatever other kinds of norms are kind of dissolved in this story, it becomes immediately apparent that God is not bound by any particular definition or group or demographic. The gospel, in fact, as you're seeing in the book of Acts in this portion of it, the gospel just keeps breaking Barriers and going farther and wider. Just in this one story, in Acts chapter 8, God's grace in the gospel was sufficient for an ethnic other, a non Jew, right? In this case, a black skinned Ethiopian, not even close to Jerusalem. But God's grace was for him. God said, I want him. I can save him. And so he sends his people on the road to meet them. In this story, the gospel, the grace of God in the gospel is sufficient for a sexually broken person. A eunuch is a person who lives with profound brokenness that's been perpetrated upon him against his will. And yet, the grace of the gospel is sufficient for him. That's a relevant word for our own day. We are all sexually broken to some degree. But we live in a time when there is particular confusion and brokenness surrounding the topic of sexuality. And these ideologies that are very common and popular in our culture are just going to absolutely leave destruction in their wake. There will be all manner of pain and brokenness. And we need to be reminded the gospel is big enough for them. The gospel is good enough for any brokenness. And we need to be looking for opportunities to apply the gospel in those places. Here's another one. The, the grace of the gospel in this story was sufficient for a government official. I don't know if that surprises you. Like, I don't know what God could do with some of them cats, right? But so here's somebody who is high up in the Ethiopian government, and God saves him. So who can't God save, right? Right? The the grace of God in the gospel just transcends any and all of these barriers. Social, religious, ethnic, cultural, sexual, socioeconomic. There there is no boundary that the gospel won't break through, because the gospel of Jesus is more powerful than any of our barriers. I can't help but wonder, in fact, this is a little bit speculative, but I I just decide to believe that That this is the case. The Ethiopian had been reading in Isaiah 53. And I wonder if he continued to read. And maybe he got just a few chapters later and read in Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, these words Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I like to think that the Ethiopian eunuch read those words and thought, that's for me. The gospel of Jesus is for me. There's no man made boundaries, ethnic, sexual, positional, or otherwise, that are strong enough to dam up the flowing river of God's love in Jesus Christ. What prevents me from being baptized? Unbelief. That's it. That's the only barrier that exists between a sinner and salvation. It's just unbelief. If you will confess to God that you are a sinner in need of his forgiving grace and place your trust in Jesus Christ, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, naming him Lord and King over your life, you will be saved. It's not too late. And the gospel is big enough even for you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel that breaks all of the boundaries and barriers that we have established as sinful people. We thank you for stories like this one that remind us, that display for us the ways that you save sinners, the ways that you show your care and attentiveness to individuals in their plight and in their hardships, and that you are committed to bringing the gospel of Jesus to those places, and to those people who need to hear it. We thank you that you've entrusted that message and that task to us, and as we acknowledge that together and we admit there's some fear and trembling that comes along with that assignment, we pray that you would enlarge our hearts to trust you more. Give us opportunities and give us the courage to take advantage of opportunities. To speak to people about the good news concerning Jesus. Give us opportunities to meet with non-believers and to point them to the scriptures and to explain to them the good news about Jesus from, from your word. Lord, make us faithful, make us diligent, and make us fruitful, we pray, by your Spirit at work through us, that sinners might be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ that your church might be built and that the name of Jesus Christ would be honored. And it's in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.